And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, October 30th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a promising new avenue to help prevent suicides among veterans and service members. Plus, here's a novel way for contractors to pitch ideas to the Defense Department. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the next time you log on to your Thrift Savings Plan account, you might notice a new option on the left-hand sidebar. The TSP Loan Tracker is meant to offer participants a step-by-step look into the progress of loan applications. It's one of the newer features of TSP's big update that started last summer. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And let's talk about this feature, the Loan Tracker. How does it all work, Drew? So this is something that participants, if they do apply for a loan, they can see everything in sort of a to-do list of the processing of those applications. So the uh, feature splits it splits up the tasks into two tabs. You have in progress and then you have complete. So you can see a list of what still needs to be done and uh, what is already has been done in terms of you know the processing of that loan application. The goal here is to alleviate some calls to Thriftline. That's custom. That's the customer service uh, phone line for the TSP. So when participants call in, they ask questions about different things. The idea here is you know, let's get out ahead of it and try to answer some of those questions in a more self-service style uh, where TSP participants can see it themselves. This is something, Tom, that we actually talked about over the summer. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board described it as a, quote, pizza tracker. And this is a little bit more nuanced than something that you might see from Domino's. You get specifically what is missing or why there might be a delay there. So Jim Courtney, director of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board's Office of Communications and Education explained more. If you have a pending loan application, it tells you where you are in the process. Has your spouse consented? Are your documents in order? This allows participants to check in at any time and as often as they'd like. I wonder if they can verify if your spouse has consented. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a different program, all right? This new loan tracker, then, is part of Converge. That's the name of the program that resulted in the new portal that launched last summer. Had some trouble getting started. Is it better? I mean, I think it's been making steady improvement. What are they saying now, how it works relative to the launch? There is definitely smoother sailing at this point, Tom. I know we've talked about this pretty extensively over the last year, year and a half, since that program launched, there were a lot of initial issues with it, of course, but we've seen even just in the past couple of months, participant satisfaction. This is something that the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board tracks monthly. It's on an upward trend right now and above 90% just for the last two months. Of course, compared to the initial launch last summer when you had these really high call volumes, hours long wait times for the customer service center, now things are have subsided. They're much more back to normal by this point. So there have been a lot of improvements. Initial issues have gone away for the most part. And now it seems like the board and their contractor, Accenture Federal Services, are trying to you know, update or make smaller changes at this point, but most of the update is is already largely launched. There's a few long-term concerns, at least from some participants. I recall they were annoyed that they couldn't get 
old data or historical data on things, and the TSP board was saying, well, nobody ever asked for that data when it was online in the first place. So now you have to write in or email them, and they'll send it to you. Is this still one of the issues, and are there any other big issues that users say they wish they had? Yeah, the historical question is definitely one that is not going to be changed as far as I know. That was a more permanent change with the update where you can only see going 10 years back. And if you want to get more detailed information, the board says uh, you have to just call Thriftline to get that information. So they have it available on the back end. But just they've said that, you know, in terms of the number of people who actually asked for that information versus the lift that it would take to make it available to everyone just doesn't really make sense. So that's their reasoning for, you know, why that change was made. Other than that, you have the very popular annuity calculator that was available for the uh, TSP website in the old version. This is something where I believe it is available once you log into my account, but they're looking at a way to make that available just on tsp.gov. And again, this just calculates depending on what day you retire or when you retire, what your annuity amount would be based on those different factors. That's something that a lot of participants really enjoyed having. So those are some of the changes that are still there. And oh, and one other thing, Tom, that I'll just have to mention is that there is a lawsuit from several TSP participants earlier this summer against the board and Accenture. Not a lot of progress there except for just filing that class action lawsuit against the agency over some of those initial issues as well. Yeah, maybe they ought to let that one go. It's going to be 10 years before they get any results, and then who knows what they'll actually get out of it. The law firms will do well, but you know what are you going to really get? Beyond the loan tracker, which I imagine for those taking a loan is really good, any other features they plan to add? So this same type of tracker technology that they are using for loans, they're going to make it available to other actions that you can take within the TSP. So for example, if you want to take a withdrawal, you will eventually, they didn't offer a timeline, but eventually this will be available for withdrawals for TSP participants as well. And I'm making that available in my account. But Jim Courtney from FRTIB said it's going to go a step further as well. Instead of participants having to log on to look, the participant in the future, we think, can sign up for text alerts, which will come automatically when another step in the process has happened. Yeah, I wonder if those text alerts will also come when your loan gets in there or the application and then your spouse could see your phone and then they could consent or not consent. I hate to keep harping on that one. And also the board said military members enrollment in the blended retirement system that's going to change too. What's going on there? So this is something that was part of uh, an update that they gave at their monthly board meeting just last week. And they said that in September for the first time ever since the launch of the uh, blended retirement system program back in 2018, the number of participants in that newer retirement system has surpassed the legacy system for military members. Now, this is a separate announcement from the loan tracker and the other features of Converge, but they said was quite significant as well. They transitioned to this new system in 2018 to try to help military members who may not stay with the military for maybe more than a few years. The retirement pension for the military, for that matter, is you have a requirement of 20 years of service to qualify for that pension. So the idea here when they passed the law in 2018 was to offer at least a little bit of retirement savings to some of the shorter term uh, service members. Now they're seeing, of course, you know, this has surpassed that legacy system and that is quite significant. They have about 1.3 million uh, participants in the new blended retirement system 
versus about 1.2 uh, million participants in the legacy system now. So that was something that the board shared just last week. All right. So a work in progress, but it all seems to be moving in the right direction. That's right. You know, there's still some, uh, as we kind of discussed, there's still some concerns, I suppose, from the system. But generally, things seem to be at least trending in the right direction at this point. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, here's a novel way for contractors to pitch ideas to the Defense Department. Get those video cameras fired up. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. They work on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. They work just about everywhere. So why not short videos to pitch ideas to Defense Department program managers and contracting officers? That's the idea behind the year-old Tradewinds project under the DOD's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. Now there's a new development at Tradewinds, how to apply AI to contract writing, artificial intelligence. We get more now from the Tradewind executive lead, Bonnie Evangelista. Ms. Evangelista, good to have you with us. Oh, thanks. Appreciate your time. And let's talk about this year-old effort on videos. And just to get a progress report, how many videos have been presented and what are you generally getting in from vendors and what types of products are they pitching in this manner? So... Like you said, as of November 1st, we will be a year old. We are somewhere in the range, and someone's going to probably slap me for not knowing my numbers off the top of my head, but we're somewhere in the range of over 150 videos in what we call the Tradewind Solutions Marketplace. But we've assessed somewhere close to 400 videos, so you can kind of get a sense of the ratio there of what's coming in versus what's staying in and what's not making it in. Outside of that, to me, it's one of the coolest ways we're trying to lower barriers to entry for industry. And rather than asking for technical proposals, even slick sheets or white papers, or if you're familiar with quad charts, we're actually aligning with, I think, what industry is used to on the commercial side, which is just a product pitch. It's very closely aligned to a venture capitalist pitch that you, if you've seen Shark Tank before, it's not quite that edgy maybe and and (laughs) quick, but we're asking for the same things. What is your solution and what problem are you solving? That's like the first minute of a Shark Tank pitch. And then we also want to know, well, why, like, what's the magnitude for you solving my problem? And what makes you different in your market? Why are you innovative or unique? Or what are you doing differently that maybe we should understand? I love that approach because it just gets away from the entire, I don't know, industry of proposal writing. And it gives, I think, industry an easier, especially startups and small businesses, an easier mechanism to try to break in that government front door. And do you get the sense from the videos that people have done their homework because you have specific (laughs) missions, there are specific requirements that are developed by the armed services and so on, so they're not just quote unquote, shooting in the dark with these. Right. And I think you kind of get a sense of that when you see what the ratio is versus what we're getting in for assessment versus what's actually staying in, because a lot of people aren't doing their homework. I think they're assuming it's just like any other video pitch that they might have done before. And like you said, we have very specific questions. So if you aren't answering or addressing the questions, you're not going to make it. It's not so arbitrary that everybody gets in but we do have an established protocol that we're asking industry to pay attention to. And then 
creating videos now is just as easy as texting sure. on your phone. You know, you can use an app on your phone to do it. So it's less about production quality. And it's more about addressing the questions and convincing us that I'm going to use a cyber term that you're not selling vaporware. Sure. Well, what happens if you say, wow, this is really good? Again, not the production value, but the information in that video. What happens next to one you like? Congratulations. Welcome. You're in the marketplace. So what does that mean? If you're in the marketplace, because we have gone through, I would say, painstakingly diligence to ensure that I'm going to call it our solicitation methodology and execution is aligned with regulation and statutory requirements, vendors now who are in the marketplace have gone through a competitive assessment process for multiple authorities. And by checking that competition box, you now have a mechanism to receive or potentially get a government contract. So someone like me, a practitioner on the government side who is supporting a government buyer, has the ability to do business directly with you for your solution, not for anything, for your solution, right? This is a product and services pitch. And we can do business directly with you on the basis of competition because of that published process that we were just talking about. And if you essentially, if you're determined to have technical merit against that process and against the criteria that we've published, then you're in. And we, again, we've met the competition standard for multiple authorities. So now we have an ability to do business. We're speaking with Bonnie Evangelista, the execution lead for the Tradewinds Initiative under the Defense Department's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. But essentially, why the video? Why can't they just call you up on a Zoom chat? I mean, what is the advantage of the small, short video other than it feels cool, like, you know, kind of the vernacular in social media? For us, it was not just the most modern way to communicate right now, but it's easier to consume. Like as a consumer of the video, from a government buyer perspective, there's a little bit more of a ease of adoption hurdle we don't have to go through if we are just telling people, hey, you just need to watch a five minute video pitch or like five or six of these video pitches rather than reading pages of technical proposals or other information that again, would maybe be less less of a draw for people. And how are the production values, by the way? I mean, some of the big contractors have full-fledged broadcast-grade studios in them, but I wonder if they have the savvy to maybe not use them to try to not snow you, you know, with production value. Yeah, I think we've seen quite a range. Honestly, when you open up the aperture, you get to see how creative people are. I've seen people videotaping them demoing a product like from a phone and overlaying some text or some other images to kind of show us what's going on. And then I've seen some really high quality videos that definitely look professionally produced. And honestly, as nice as that is, and of course, that is the submitter's discretion as to whether like, how did they want to present themselves within their means and whatnot. At the end of the day, the most comments I get from people are really about the content. Like, oh, that solution does or does not really align with my mission set or something. And there's less commentary about the production quality. All right. And let's get to the topic of artificial intelligence in contract writing, because mm -hmm. that's a challenge across DOD, really across government, because of so many clauses that are required in federal contracts, but they're not all required in all contracts. On the other hand, if you leave out a crucial one, you can really have trouble. And it's been really difficult time to develop commercial contract writing systems. 
and there's been some spectacular failures of that. So tell us about the AI in contract writing and what are you doing there? We have a prototype. It's been almost 18 months now, going on two years, that we've been prototyping this capability. And it honestly started as a proof of concept. We really didn't have an idea of what it was going to look like on the other side of this. So when I initially issued a challenge for show me something cool and AI and contract writing and show me like what the art of the possible is, most companies responded with, I will build you whatever you want. And remember, I don't know what I want. I wanted an idea of where we could maybe break some glass or push some boundaries. And me not being a technical person, I was hoping to take maybe something that's already out there and and see if we can modify it. Mm -hmm. And there was one company, though, that had started thinking about this problem, I would say, on the proposal writing industry side. And they said, we can show you what we're doing and where the technology is going. And so that started with, this was about nine months before OpenAI released ChatGPT, and I had no idea what generative AI was. And my first introduction to that was 45 days into the project, there was an MVP demo, and they took a very descriptive title, like a project title, and it generated two paragraphs of text to help us define what the problem statement for the project might be. And that immediately took us down a path of how do we immediately adopt this type of capability into our business workflow where we're working with customers to define what their mission gaps or mission needs are. Because my team in particular is leveraging non-FAR-based authorities such as other transaction authorities. That's typically the place we're at. We're not defining requirements. We're more so defining problems so that industry can come to us with the solutions. And so the generative AI technology part is really helping us increase velocity in our teams because it kind of streamlines and improves our ability to articulate and create language around something that we need more clarity on. Because a lot of times, even when we're working with our customers, having a blank sheet of paper and us telling them, tell us what your problem is, can be a little scary or a little daunting. And having generative AI act as like a junior writing assistant and take a best guess based on some human input, uh, what it is we're looking for, and then us continuing to refine it has increased our ability tremendously to reduce, I would say, those lead times going into like us publishing something that industry would consume on the solicitation side. So I've no kidding been able to take a process that could take weeks or months with the right people in the room around like this tool and us editing in real time together, we can do it in 30 minutes and come up with a problem statement. And then the tool also helps us generate structured text on the back end so that we can publish announcements very, very quickly. So it's more than really contract writing. Technically, it sounds like it's more coming to a meeting of the minds agreement type of application. Absolutely. I will say that's where we started, right? Because once I saw what it was capable of, I said, I can use this today to do this. And now we're trying to figure out where else can we leverage and optimize what's happening here into contract writing. So that's kind of the exploration and the journey we're on right now. All right. And just anything else cooking at Tradewinds? Because you've been pretty well cited for innovation over there. What's what's next on the plate? Well, I will say right now, scaling is a big thing I'm thinking about. So how do I get the rest of the department to leverage some of the things we're doing. So that could mean better product design on the digital footprint side and and making sure we're communicating and messaging things 
consistently and with more clarity. So right now there's a big, I would say, education and communications line of effort that is underway and then improving what we have so that it can be scalable across the department is really what's cooking for me right now. Yeah. Scaling, that requirement applies pretty much across the board, doesn't it? In DOD. Absolutely. Honestly, everybody who has an experiment should be thinking like, if I am successful in these first iterations, where does it go from there? And I think that's the part where we sometimes lose focus. Maybe somebody can develop an idea for turning beer bottles into howitzer shells, and then suddenly we've got billions of them that we need. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll send in the video on that. Yeah, for sure. Bonnie Evangelista is execution lead for the Tradewinds Initiative under the Defense Department's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress is functional again, more or less, and it's got no time to lose. But first, a promising new avenue to help prevent suicides among veterans and service members. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Social media posts reveal a lot about the posters. That's why some agencies look at job candidates or security clearance applicants' social media accounts. Now, research by my next guest shows how monitoring social media posts can reveal indicators of suicide and therefore help prevent it. Harvard psychology professor Matthew Nock joins me now. Dr. Nock, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And you've been studying suicide for quite a long time. So it sounds like this joins a long list of indicators that if people are sensitive to, they can maybe help people prevent suicide. What are some of the indicators besides social media? And we'll get to the details there in a moment. So I've been at Harvard studying suicide for 20 years now. So we've been looking at trying to understand suicide in the general population, among adolescents, among military service members, veterans, and so on. And there are some key risk factors across all groups we've examined, probably most prominently the presence of mental illness. So about 90 to 95% of people who die by suicide have some form of mental disorder before their death. And usually it's what we call comorbidity or multimorbidity, which refers to having two, three, four mental disorders at once. Depression is the one that people think of most, and it has the strongest relationship with suicidal thinking. But other disorders like alcohol use, substance use, aggressive behavior, what we call intermittent explosive disorder, are more predictive of of suicidal behavior, so acting on those thoughts. And we think it's really the combination of those factors that put people at elevated risk. All right. So looking at social media postings then, that's kind of once removed from observation of the person themselves. And it might be that the people closest to the person don't even see those posts. They can see the outbursts. They can see the alcohol consumption. They can hear direct statements, I'd like to kill myself or something along those lines. So tell us about the research in social media and you used army subjects here. Yes. So this work with social media, trying to better understand and predict suicide, builds on decades of work on how people talk about suicide. So for decades, we've known that about two-thirds of people who die by suicide told someone ahead of time that they were thinking about death or dying or wanting to kill themselves. So we've long known that people often give us signals that they're thinking about suicide, that they're at risk. People don't really know how to respond. And research has also shown that about 80% of people who die by suicide denied suicidal thoughts or intentions 
in their last communication before dying, which makes it understandable that people wouldn't know what to do. When should we act on someone's talking about suicide and when shouldn't we? What social media does is provides a platform for capturing all of that information and systematizing how we scan for it uh, and how we respond to it. And so we've been the past few years working with a social media platform. I think this is what you're referring to called Rally Point, which is sort of Facebook meets LinkedIn for military service members and veterans. It's a place where people can go and post about what they're experiencing. They enjoy fishing and hunting and questions about the military and so on. And occasionally people will post about suicide. And so we've been building machine learning classifiers. So basically algorithms that sweep over posts and in an automatized, computerized way, identify the posts of people who are having suicidal thoughts and posting about them or posting hints about them and intervening in real time to try and reach out to those folks and save them. And what are some of the things that you can see in a rally point? I mean, when people discuss suicide, they could say, gee, one thing we want to do is help our comrades avoid suicide. That's one thing. But do people express thoughts on this rally point as postings that could be indicators that the poster is thinking about suicide? Absolutely. So we've built these classifiers that are rally point specific in a way and that we capitalize on the fact that many military service members and veterans will use language that's a little bit different from what people use in the general population. For instance, there's a longstanding statistic that there are 22 suicides per day among veterans. And so someone might post, I'm about to be one of the 22, where in the general population, that doesn't mean so much. But on this site, we know that number is often used to to refer to suicide. And so those are posts that will flag for humans to take a look at and determine, is this poster at risk of suicide? Are they posting about suicide? And then right now, the model is that humans from Rally Point will intervene in real time. And we've had dozens of cases so far where we found people who were suicidal and intervened to try and keep them safe. And our next research steps are building automated interventions that suggest to other people that they reach out to the person at risk or suggest to the person at risk that they take steps to try and keep themselves safe. So we can really scale this up and potentially share it with other other platforms. We're speaking with Dr. Matthew Nock. He is chairman of the psychology department at Harvard University and a research scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital. That was my question. Can this be operationalized in a way that doesn't violate the person's privacy because the best intentions in the world can run afoul of privacy statutes? And who would you alert because of the linked nature of these these accounts? Almost no one would not be connected in some way, even if a couple of times removed from the original poster. It's a very good point you raise, and there are some well-known efforts where well-intended steps have gone awry. So there was a, a platform that would find people on Twitter who were at risk for suicide in crisis and reach out to people in their network, and the effort was stopped in just a few days because it backfired. Uh, you know, someone would say, I'm being bullied, I'm going to kill myself, and the app would reach out to the bully and say, hey, this person's going to kill himself, and the bully might say, good, you should kill yourself. So it was well-intended uh, in terms of finding people and trying to help them, but didn't work the way it was intended. So we're really mindful of the fact that we have to do research and we have to do experiments and we have to see, is this thing that we think helping people, is it actually helping or is it doing harm? And we want to make sure to prevent that. We're consistently motivated by two things. One is people at risk often don't have access to care. This is true of veterans. It's in a way true of service members, military service members. They have access to care, but they're often not using it because they're encouraged not to communicate with other people that they're having mental distress, that they're having thoughts of suicide for fear of being discharged from the service. So they're not getting ready access to care. And the second is peer support. 
service members, veterans often say when they're in distress, they don't want to go to sort of traditional clinical channels. They don't want to go to their doctor. They don't want to go to their supervisor. They want to talk to peers. They want to talk to their friends, their comrades, their partners. So what we're trying to do is capitalize on that and get people access to care through their peer support network. And just a detail question, you mentioned, you know, I could be one of the 22 today as an obvious post that is known in its meaning to people in the military. What are some other signs for those that might have a suspicion about someone or just care about other people that are reading these posts? What are some other things that may be a little bit more subtle to look out for? Yeah, that's a great question. There was a a work group a few years back of suicide researchers who were focused on understanding the science of warning signs for suicide. There are all sorts of efforts and little cards that are handed out saying, here are the things to look out for. Person, you know, becomes disheveled in their appearance or acts a little down. And what the group realized is there's really no evidence for any of those really subtle things. The big warning signs to look out for are people talking about not wanting to be around anymore, thinking about death, thinking about dying, or talking about suicide. So I would encourage people to look out for those things. And it's often difficult. You know, having studied suicide for well over 20 years, it's difficult for me sometimes. So if I have a friend, coworker, patient who subtly mentions something about not wanting to be around anymore, it can be stressful to, to, to broach the subject and ask. But I would encourage people to ask, are things so bad that you're thinking about suicide? There's lots of evidence showing that asking people about suicide, talking about suicide, does not make people more suicidal. And that's a big concern. If I ask the question, maybe we'll put the idea in someone's head. And that's just not the case. So given my earlier statistic that two thirds of people who die by suicide told someone about it, I would really encourage people if someone around you subtly hints at or explicitly states that they're thinking about suicide, follow up and ask them about it. And I often try to lead into it. Have you been feeling down? Have you been feeling depressed? Have things been so bad that you thought about not wanting to be alive anymore or that you thought about suicide? And if so, allow the person to share what they're experiencing, listen in an open, concerned way, and talk to them about the importance of getting help and offer to bring them to a a local emergency department or a hotline or a, a local mental health professional for a thorough evaluation. It could save a life. And what you say about the language means it's really important to design those artificial intelligence algorithms correctly because someone could say, yes. I don't want to be around, and they're referring to a circus that's making noise you know, down the street. Absolutely. The context Absolutely. is really the harder thing maybe to get at than the specific words. Right. When we, as with anyone, build, build these, these classifiers, these machine learning classifiers, you want to balance false positives and false negatives, um, so, as we say. So false positive means... You know, the flag goes up saying, here's something we're concerned about when that's false. It's, you know, the person is talking about the circus. This It's the same logic that is used in creating spam filters. Is this spam or is it not? And they work okay. And as you give the, the algorithm feedback, you look into your spam folder and you say, yep, spam, 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 not spam. The algorithm learns. And we do the same thing here. We try and figure out, is this post someone in distress? Are they at risk for suicide? And we're much more okay with false positives than we are with what we call false negatives, where we miss a post that's suicide related. We don't want to miss them. So what we do is flag them and then have a human look through to catch the ones that are false positive and not respond and only respond to the ones that look like they're real people in real distress. Dr. Matthew Nock is chairman of the psychology department at Harvard University and a research scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me and for covering this really important topic. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his suicide research at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come, Congress is functional again, more or less, and it's got no time to lose. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The House of Representatives does have a speaker, for now anyhow. That was a heavy lift. What comes next, now that Capitol Hill is operational again, more or less, we get this week's outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And after all the fanfare, and I guess some Democrats came over and voted, and it was all moonlight and roses for 30 seconds on Capitol Hill, what can we expect this week as the real issues start crowding back in? Well, a lot of the work that they had hoped to do before the three weeks without a speaker is being resumed now. And the biggest effort is a resumption of debating the fiscal 2024 appropriations bills. This was all precipitated by the bill that kept the government open with um, many Republicans unhappy that Kevin McCarthy had come up with a bill that relied on a lot of Democratic support to become law and to keep the government open through November 17th. Now, a good chunk of that time through November 17th was eaten up by this process, but we saw almost a Immediately, they swore in Mike Johnson as the speaker. They did a resolution on Israel, which is something else that had been held up. And then they went right back to one of the spending bills, and they passed that before they left town last week. So we have five through the House now, um, one that was rejected, and a plan that's kind of ambitious to get through the others, at least pass House versions of them, get them over to the Senate, and try to get a process going here to get full-year appropriations in. Now, there's talk again about another CR. We'll have to see what happens there. But they got back to business pretty quickly once they could. Therefore, they're trying to avoid another CR if they can and go not the omnibus route, but the fewer consolidated bills route, ideally. The plan that new Speaker Johnson had circulated even before he was Speaker, trying to win support from his colleagues, was maybe a CR into January or maybe April. So, you know, let's make progress on the regular bills. Let's not go to the CR route quite yet, but he wants to keep that in his back pocket as a way to keep the government open. He may have more leeway to do that just because he's got almost universal support in the Republican conference. There were no no votes against him on the House floor, unlike the other votes we had seen before that. So he might have the ability to do that. Now, he also has to work pretty quickly with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and President Joe Biden, which, you know, one chamber alone, one party alone in this system isn't going to get everything at once. But, you know, I think he could buy himself some time, but try to make progress and try to secure some of the wins he wants as a conservative, because that's kind of how he ran for the job as somebody who wants to see conservative wins in these bills. Right. Maybe that's one challenge is President Biden and Chuck Schumer. Maybe the bigger challenge are his own party members, the same group that ousted Kevin McCarthy. That's right. The motion to vacate that took out Kevin McCarthy is still there. But of course, his path to the speakership once he was the nominee was much smoother than Kevin McCarthy's was or Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, or Tom Emmer, all of whom faltered after they won their party's backing. So I think he starts off in a somewhat stronger position, but you have to see how this plays out in the coming weeks. And what about the aid package that the president promised to request that's, I guess, in front of Congress now, this as the United States has been carrying out its own strikes against Iran or proxies in Iran over in Syria. That situation is not getting any less complicated either. 
It is not. And there's two packages now to deal with. One is the $106 billion that was requested for Ukraine, Israel, the border, and allies in the Indo-Pacific region, among others. And then there's a $56 billion domestic package to cover disaster aid, child care, other priorities that the administration has and that many Democrats in Congress will go along with. The question on all this is going to be packaging and what can you get through. Democrats have been viewing that $106 billion as one package to deal with, maybe a Ukraine plus Israel bill. We already heard last week from Speaker Johnson that he's looking at bifurcating those. Interestingly, he wasn't saying no to Ukraine aid, which is something that many Republicans on the House side are leaning towards now. They don't necessarily want Ukraine aid, and he might want some different strictures on that or different reporting requirements. So we'll see. But he may want two bills. The Senate Democrats may only want one. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And the domestic spending could be a tough sell because, as you know, even before we got to this point, the domestic spending and the regular appropriations bills, there's a big gap between what the House and the Senate want. And so that's just going to complicate that discussion further. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He's deputy news director for Bloomberg government. So, yeah, plenty to go on here. And they're not going to recess, correct? That's right. These were supposed to be two weeks with less work, and now they're two weeks in session. So they're not back till Wednesday this week, but they'll have three days this week, four days next week ahead of the Veterans Day holiday. And now that the House is back in business, can action happen on the National Defense Authorization Act? Because that's another deadline, maybe a deadline beyond the funding shortfall or the CR ending. But nevertheless, they want to do that this calendar year. That's right. That's a bill that they'd like to get done. The House had already named its conferees. I believe the Senate still needs to do that, but they can start having informal talks. The dynamic behind that bill has been the top line number. There's a lot of agreement. You know, maybe there's some gaps between different weapon systems or programs. They can work that out on that side. But there are riders in the House bill that wouldn't be palatable to the Senate. So we'll have to see how the negotiators deal with that when they sit down to talk about it. But you could see a path where that bill could be negotiated before the end of the year, come back to the two chambers and make it to the president's desk if they can resolve the gaps that exist between the House and Senate versions. But that one's pretty far along as as these things go. And FAA and the Farm Bill, those authorizations, how are they coming along now? Well, the FAA has an extension through the end of the year. That was part of the continuing resolution that was passed in late September. The House has passed a bill. The Senate hasn't. There's you know always behind-the-scenes talks. If the Senate were to get something through its chamber, that's something that could be negotiated and worked out. The Farm Bill is much further behind. Neither the House or the Senate committee has produced a bill, and there's already talk about what to do about maybe a year-long extension. Although that's tied to September 30th, the way that farm programs work, it tends to be more crop seasons and things like that that are affected. But I would expect a push maybe even around the next continuing resolution if we go that route to tack an extension of that on so that they have until next year to really get going on that. There's a lot of work to do on that one in particular. And having taken a back seat is the issue of the holdup on nominations for promotion of general officers in the Defense Department, the Tommy Tuberville hold. And then there's a bunch of other administration appointments that need to be acted on by the Senate. Will we see progress on that? Yeah, I mean, the Senate has slowly churned through these things. But to your point about Tommy Tuberville holding up the military promotions, uh, they pushed several through uh, last month, and they're looking at ways to get more through, especially the slots on the Joint Chiefs of Staff that are open. There was talk last week about 
maybe do we push through a rules change? That doesn't necessarily seem to have gained traction yet, but we'll see action there. A big nomination maybe this week, Jack Lou to be ambassador to Israel. Obviously a key post with everything going on there. We might see a confirmation vote this week. And then Harry Coker, who was nominated to be the new national cyber director, he's getting a hearing. So these things are continuing to percolate behind the scenes, but there is still this blockade on a number of nominations that Democrats have to decide how much floor time they want to devote to get over that. It's all about floor time at this point, correct? Very much so. And the pipeline is getting pretty pretty blocked up here with everything that's uh, you know on the agenda. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director for Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The cloud security program known as FedRAMP is about to get its first major update in more than a decade. The Office of Management and Budget says the changes will better address the shift toward software as a service that many agencies are making. For some of the major updates OMB is proposing in a draft FedRAMP memo, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer, Drew Michaelgard. This is tied, of course, to the legislation that came out last January. And in it, you know, a lot of the high-level guidance that we're, we're adding to was laid out there. And one of them is take the Joint Authorization Board and all the great that work that they're doing and find a way to scale that. And so set up a larger board with up to seven people from across the federal government that'll do a lot of the, the work of a traditional board. So like set the direction, decide the strategy, what sort of areas to focus on as far as like what are the needs of, of federal government entities at the current time, what are the security risks that that we are facing and need to address? And overall, like how do you bring in where we're at 300 and some products right now after 10 years, how do we get to thousands or the thousands of products that we see different agencies wanting to use? So that's, of course, a big interest. And that's a challenging problem. Anytime you want to both scale a program from from how much we're bringing in, how many products that we're looking at, cloud service providers, to also building the trust in agencies. The great work of the job was that if you had a job authorization, you know, you'd go from agency to agency and, and there's a high level of trust. And at the other end of the spectrum, we had the agency authorization. So like when I was at Department of Veterans Affairs before, I did a lot of agency authorizations and the, we haven't seen as high of adoption. So how do we strike a balance between all the great work the agencies are doing, as well as the high levels that the, the JAB was able to set, and then scale that to, to more and more partners. So with the JAB, the seven-member board, uh, imagine it's going to be very similar to the TMF board. You'll have a cross-section of kind of really big agencies, maybe smaller agencies. Imagine it will be rotating. Is, is that kind of the model we're talking about? It is a mixture, much like TMF, in that we, we are looking for cross-agency representation, a little bit different is the TMF is focused on projects and approving those. This is going to be a mixture of, there, there were three legislatively mandated agencies. So DOD, DHS, and GSA are all going to be on the board and have their representation. And, and those are all three leaders in, in IT anyways. You'd want them on the board. Beyond that, we're looking at, we want to make sure the business lines are presented. A lot of times there's a tension between what a business needs to accomplish its mission and like listening to to those needs versus what are we trying to do on the the security side? What are we trying to do from a from like tech debt and a lot of those things? So we want to make sure those voices are heard. And lastly, we want to hear 
from at the agency level, like what do our developers and people that are building software, like what do they need for tools? So it's, it's attacking at the enterprise level, CIOs, it's attacking major business lines, and then also how do our people use the best tools that you would expect in any sort of large corporation? The other big change I've, I've heard about is, is the way you're going to maybe look at tackling FedRAMP authorizations. You mentioned the jab was very popular, but the agency one was not as, as the reciprocity piece was hard. How are you addressing kind of the FedRAMP authorizations going forward? So we're going to continue with the model of joint authorizations because that that's what people trust. You know, an in of one is usually not enough to build that trust. But when you get two or three agencies together working on it, I think the difference will be going forward that and that you'll see agencies more aligned to their their needs. So if it's if it's health aligned, you could see DOD with department. You know, they've got their defense health agency, and you've got VA, and you've got. HHS, like the three of them would make a lot of sense in sponsoring health focused things, treasury and other agencies could do finance. So, so what we're expecting to see is, is more domain experience, but you also have multiple CISOs and multiple CIOs looking at the products that, that their agency needs and then ensuring that, that they're secure and, and accessible for their, for their frontline businesses. So we have the change in the jab. We have obviously the, the, the authorizations piece. What else is, is should folks look out as, as kind of big, big changes that, that are highlighted in this draft memo? One of the other areas that was in the legislation was a FACA setup, and it's called the Federal Secure Cloud Advisory Committee. So it's the FISCAC. And this is a, a public, so we brought together a number of internal leaders from security acquisitions user experience within the federal government, like DISA, DISA, GSA, VA, big and small agencies, as well as industry leaders in security, people that already work with the federal government, but also ones that are that are interested in doing it. So we're getting a lot of perspectives from those meetings. We've had three so far. There's a series of them this month, and I invite everybody that, you know, that's interested in FedRAMP as a program overall. This is a, a valuable way to contribute to it. You also look at within the memo, like making FedRAMP into a program that'll support this type of change in mission. So we're moving from, you know, like where in the past, like they were highly focused on a couple of, of, of authorizations a year. How do you manage at a scale that's much larger than that? And so we, there were six or eight jab authorizations and a number of agency authorizations as we scale that. How does that program lean in more towards like the process of executing on it? And so you'll see more responsibility there. And also it's taking a measure of risk. So what, what areas do we need to focus on with our current threat environment with the, you know, like we've seen year after year, continual threats to, to systems that we depend on, like how, how do we ensure that this is a strong security program and not just compliance program? How does it work within the larger ecosystem and be the, like that, that seal of approval, that high level of trust and belief in a system. So that's those are the big areas that we're looking to impact. Is this what you're referring to, the, the cloud advisory board, the cloud security advisory board? But there's also, I've heard the technical advisory group. Are these the one and the same or the, the technical advisory group is a separate entity? That's going to be separate. The technical advisory group. So we're going to have the FedRAMP board, which you, the JAB board was extremely technical and some of our best and brightest security people in the federal sector. The technical advisory group will sit underneath the FedRAMP board and advise those 
the sponsors of different products, like the be their be their security SMEs, um, and and those are going to be like just a larger version of the the current group of of like the jab. So if you think of that's where your security specialists are, and they're advising the the CIOs that are that are and CISOs that are working to provide those authorizations, like all the details they need, as well as with ongoing continuous monitoring. And like the role that that plays is as our, you know, like the the getting the authorization is important, but the long-term monitoring of security risks is also just as important. What sounds like you're doing is you're bringing in more resources, you're bringing in more people from across government, even, you know, maybe within industry to help with the program to advance it. What is the, you know, when you think about the bigger goal of this FedRAMP memo, this update, is it to do what beyond modernize some of the way the FedRAMP is set up, which, as you said, it's been about a decade since the last memo. At the core, it's to react to a changing environment. Like the, the problem set in the beginning was like, how do we get major IaaS infrastructure providers into the federal government operating? Right now, we need to solve the problem of how do we get thousands of SaaS and PaaS providers in? And it, they're totally different companies. Many of them leverage like big IS providers, but we have to look at them in a totally different risk posture. But the pace at which they're being adopted by the agencies is something that we need to react to. And we think between the legislation and a couple of those areas, like this memo will give the detail, like the, the legislation was great. Really, Jason, what we're looking for now is our office takes a very open view to feedback. And we really need your responses. We're and then we're also setting up a public engagement forum with GSA. And the more robust information that we get and feedback, the better that we can make this policy last probably, you know, another five to 10 years, hopefully. And hopefully it's as successful as the first one. Like it was one of the most important memos that I used in, when I was at Department of Veterans Affairs. So, you know, like ideally we get to that high level again. Drew Michaelgard, Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 